past eight months have been strange, to say the very least. It's been weird. And I kind of connect with this graphic that gives a picture of the past eight months. January through September, June, July, August, September, we're just kind of like, what in the world? And we were just a little numb to all the chaos because it's been so much chaos. And we've been through a lot of changes. And here's one change. All of a sudden, everybody has become Sheldon Cooper. It's like we have holsters with Lysol that we're just ready to spray at anyone and anything. We have a lot more time on our hands, sort of. I resonated with Stephen Colbert's tweet, quarantine has finally given me the time to clean out my attic. I haven't done it, but the time is there. We have a list of things we could do with all this extra time. And then we have all of these virtual meetings. Zoom fatigue is now probably going to enter like the psychological vocabulary of uh, problems that we struggle with. My boss turned herself into a potato on our Microsoft Teams meeting and can't figure out how to turn the setting off. So she was just stuck like that the entire meeting. Our neighbors are teachers and they have some pretty hilarious stories of their students on Zoom. And in addition to to, uh, the pandemic of COVID-19, the pandemic of racism, I'm going to go ahead and say the pandemic of politics. Many of you have had your own life challenges and chaos on top of everything that's going on. It's been hard and in light of all those challenges, we're kind of unsure about what the future holds. We're unsure of what it's going to look like as we head into fall and winter. Um, We're unsure of what our country is going to look like with an election coming up. I'm asking, uh, what will the church look like in a post-pandemic world? Both here, locally, and, and globally, Christianity as a whole. And with this uncertainty, I believe, comes an opportunity It's a chance to kind of look at our lives and our practices in a new way as we kind of figure out what is essential and what's non-essential. And with churches closing their doors and no longer being centered around a Sunday morning service, I think Christianity itself is in an opportunity, a place to ask, if we could do this differently, what would we change? If we've been given a reset button, what would we do differently? What would you change about church? Not just this church, Christianity. What do you think society wants to see changed about Christianity? They're still doing polls uh, through Pew Research studies that are finding people's perception of church has not changed a lot over the years. People still perceive Christianity as very exclusive and judgmental. So what kind of things would you change about church? The churches have, across the country, have closed their doors. They've moved online. And with the move online, has it really um, mattered that the church isn't meeting in person? What role does a faith community have in our lives? Do we need church? Is it essential or is it non-essential? Well, that's a hard question for me to ask as a pastor whose paycheck comes from having church. In the early 19th century, the Christian church, Disciples of Christ, founders, um, in the mission gathering, all five 
churches across the country are a part of this denomination, the Disciples of Christ. And the founders were surrounded by a Christianity that just was not working for them. It was exclusive, it was judgmental, it was tribal, it was kind of us versus them. And it was surrounded by churches that valued above all else right belief, right thinking, right doctrine about God more than anything else. And so these early followers, uh, or uh, these early uh, founders of the disciples of Christ saw an opportunity for a change. And they looked back in history a couple thousand years to the early followers of Jesus. They thought maybe the further back we go to the actual original followers of Jesus, maybe we'll give us some kind of glimpse into what church is supposed to look like for us today. And that was uh, 200 years ago where they asked that question. And I'm still asking that question today. And so the founders looked back to Acts 2. Acts is a uh, book after the Gospel of Luke. Uh, it's thought to be written by the same person who wrote the Gospel of Luke. And it's kind of a sequel to this uh, Luke's story of Jesus. And it's a story about how the early church lived, how they interacted with the world, how they grew. And Acts 2 says they committed themselves to the teaching of the apostles, the life together, the common meal and the prayers, and everyone around was in awe. All those wonders and signs done through the apostles and all the believers lived in a wonderful harmony, holding everything in common. And they sold whatever they owned, pooled their resources so that each person's need was met. They followed a daily discipline of worship in the temple, followed by meals at home, and every meal a celebration, exuberant and joyful, and as they praised God, people around them liked what they saw every day. Their number grew as God added to those who were saved. It was not only about beliefs or weekly worship, although that was a part of their uh, daily lives. It was about embodying a new way of life in their culture. The way they lived together, the way they interacted with one another, the way they shared their resources, the way they invited in uh, the sick women marginalized, both the rich and the poor, it was embodying a completely new way of living life. And the way of um, Jesus was so offensive to some of the Roman pagan religions because it was so inclusive. And so they grew and expanded, not because they had an awesome worship service with an awesome band and lights and and a really charismatic preacher. It was because they took care of one another. And that was radical. There was an epidemic in the second century called the Plague of Galen, and hundreds of thousands of people died in the streets. Bishop of Cyprian of Carthage said this about that. God's justice was shown during that time by whether the well care for the sick, whether relatives love their families as they should, whether masters show compassion for their ailing slaves, and whether physicians do not desert the afflicted. Where many people fled the plague, Christians stayed behind risking their lives to care for the sick. And Christianity grew and spread because of Uh, these horrible, chaotic times in history where Christians did not run away from it, but they engaged, they jumped in, and they showed love and care for their neighbor. John Chrysostom, who lived in the fourth century, said, this is the rule of most perfect Christianity, its most exact definition, its highest point, 
namely the seeking of the common good, for nothing can so make a person an imitator of Christ as caring for its neighbors. The highest point of Christianity. Is this what Christianity looks like today? I feel like this should be like the church's mission statement. I mean, this, that's it. There's nothing in there about having the right belief about God or even going to church every Sunday. Christianity about, is about being an imitator of Christ. And what does that look like, John says? It looks like caring for your neighbor. Is Christianity today known for this? In the first centuries, thousands of uh, Christians left cities and, and they fled to the desert. And they formed these monastic communities. They gave up wealth and they gave up comfort to kind of form these new ways of being in the world. And we call those people the desert fathers and mothers. And some of their teachings have survived today. And one of these desert fathers, St. Benedictine, he gathered people together and he formed what he called a rule of life. A way of kind of being together. A way of living in community that led to kind of a deeper connection with each other and with God. Dorotheus of Gaza was one of those desert fathers. He said, each one according to their means should take care to be at one with everyone else. For the more one is united to his neighbor, the more he is united with God. These rules of life help create unity among people. What are our rules of life as followers of Jesus? I'm so thankful that you all have uh, continued to help us care for our neighbors over the past few months with providing the meals in Issaquah and, and the d donating hygiene items for kids in need. And I know many of you have offered to help your own neighbors deliver groceries and, and purchase items and, and run errands. And Rob helped uh, one of our neighbors <laughs> put eye drops in her eyes when she couldn't do it herself after surgery. Y'all are doing this stuff and I'm thankful for that. You've engaged with one another over the past few months with calls and texts and Zoom gatherings and pub theologies. And joining us in uh, the peaceful march in Issaquah for Black Lives Matter to amplify the voices of the oppressed. You all have stepped in to figure that out. You all have worked with us to question our power and privilege as we figure out how to do that. So let's keep questioning, let's keep loving, and as a faith community and individuals, I want to challenge us to commit to four rules of life that we believe the early followers of Jesus committed to. And we are partnering with uh, the mission gatherings across the country and, and talking about these four rules of life that we want to embody and commit to. And we're going to be talking about those in depth over the next few weeks. And the first one is to live together. We'll talk about practices that we can take every week, every day to help us connect with one another more deeply, with our families, with our partners, with our kids, with our neighbors, with each other. We'll talk about a commitment to live simply, to oppose uh, the way of greed, to live a life of generosity, and to uh, oppose consumerism 
at its core. How do we do that? What does that actually look like as a community of people who embody this value to live simply? We'll talk about the commitment to live aware, aware of the presence of God every moment of our lives. What are the spiritual practices that help us stay present and grounded? How do we connect with God and our everyday activities and our bodies? How do we connect with the source of life and love throughout our day? What does that look like as a community who does that? And then finally, we'll talk about what it means to live engaged. We are distracted, or at least I am, distracted and overwhelmed. What does it mean to, um, to wake up to the needs and the sufferings of those around us? And not just oh, pour a glass of wine and numb out with Netflix, but what does it mean to be engaged, to wake up, to address the suffering of people around us? What does that look like as individuals and as a community? We have an opportunity right now to reevaluate who we are, what we're doing as individuals, as a faith community. To ask, are we making a difference? Are we caring for one another? And this is the big question. For our church and Christianity, would Issaquah, Sammamish, and the East Side care if Mission Gathering wasn't here? That's a big question to ask. By asking the question, that will lead us to engage in practices that ensure, yeah, mission gathering, they love their neighbor. They take care of people who are in need. So we are in a unique opportunity, a unique place to ask these questions, to evaluate what is important right now. A couple of weeks ago, we found out that my, my grandpa was given two weeks to live. And uh, the last week, um, Bampa, we, he called him Bampa because his first granddaughter tried to say grandpa and what came out was Bampa. And so for 40 years, we've been calling him Bampa. Uh, last week, Bampa was moved to hospice care and uh, he's been a pastor uh, of the Southern Baptist Church for 67 years. And he, he can't seem to retire because he, he wanted to give a sermon to the uh, staff of that hospice care. And um, they recorded that sermon on Facebook Live. There's a picture of him there. And in that sermon, Bampa asked, he asked himself, what, what do I want to say in this sermon when I only have two weeks to live? And he asked himself uh, during that message, as he looks back on his life, how would I live my life differently if I could do it over again? And Bampa said, I would be more kind. There are times in life that make us say, what is important? What matters here? A couple of months ago, while the church was 100% virtual, Kylie and I were able to visit him in Arkansas and we didn't know at the time that his health would deteriorate. So I'm so thankful that we were able to do that and spend time with him. What really matters? This pandemic of 
COVID and, and all of this unrest disrupting our lives and our edu kids' education and our jobs, it's an opportunity to ask ourselves, what's really important? We got been given the chance to kind of hit reset. So what are we going to do differently? What are practices that we were doing before that maybe that's not important? These four rules of life will help us, I believe, live more authentically in the way of Jesus that leads to real and tangible and sustainable impact on our lives and our neighbors. And we're going to take just a few moments and we have um, a couple questions on the screen that I want us to take a few minutes and talk about as a group. What about church or Christianity would you change? What would you add to it? What would you take away from it? whether that's mission gathering or whether that's global Christianity as a whole, what would you keep the same? What spiritual practices do you do now that keep you uh, engaged and connected to source of love to God? What kind of things would you want to add? So take just a few minutes and uh, Mark's gonna put on some background music for us and if y'all are at home you can talk in, in, uh, with the people around you um, about these questions and then in a few minutes we'll come back together and, and uh, take communion. May God bless us with discomfort at easy answers, half-truths, and superficial relationships so that we may live from deep within our hearts. May God bless us with anger at injustice, oppression, and exploitation of God's creations so that we may work for justice, freedom, and peace. May God bless us with tears to shed for those who suffer pain, rejection, hunger, and war so that we may reach out our hands to comfort them and to turn their pain into joy. And may God bless us with just enough foolishness to believe that we can make a difference in the world so that we can do what others claim cannot be done to bring justice and kindness to all our children and all our neighbors who are poor. <laughs>